in Pergamum. And uh, so as we continue through uh, Revelation, you can open to that in your Bibles and uh, read along. I'm going to read this scripture and then I'm going to pray and, and we'll get started. Listen carefully because this is the Word of God. Revelation 2 verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak uh, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word, making us your people. As we look at the church in Pergamum, will you please help us? We know we are way too much like this church. We don't trust your word as we should. We struggle with the same sins, the same temptations, the same idols, the same issues, the same problems. We lack faith, we're sinful and self-centered. And Lord, these are hard words, and we want to be soft people, so help us to hear these hard words. Lord, help us to meet Jesus in all of his glory as we see him here in these words. Do this for each one of us this morning, in the good name of Jesus, amen. Now, both pilots stated that there was a distraction in the cockpit. According to an October 27th article in USA Today, and what was the distraction? They said they were on their laptops trying to figure out their upcoming flight schedules. Now, most Americans who fly regularly have been interested in this news story from about uh, three weeks ago. And let's say for reasons related to their own lives and the lives of their loved ones. And although it's very rare, we still freeze when we hear about plane crashes killing hundreds of people. And learning that repeated calls from air traffic controllers to the cockpit of an Airbus A320 operated by a reputable airline flying at 450 miles an hour tends to grab your attention. It also leaves you feeling somewhat vulnerable. But at least now, in this case, we know the rest of the story. But the answer doesn't exactly put us at ease. I mean, planes just don't keep flying past Minneapolis when they're supposed to land there. And pilots don't just ignore radio contact from air traffic controllers. But we have the truth finally, according to that article entitled, Distraction Led Pilots to Fly Too Far, the whole thing was about distraction. The distraction led the authorities to describe the situation by saying there was a concentrated period of discussion 
where they didn't monitor the airplane or the calls from the air traffic controllers. I hate it when that happens, especially on giant tubes of steel hurtling through the sky at 37,000 feet. Well, here's the scoop. There was a long flight from San Diego to Minneapolis, and apparently there was a uh, heated discussion between the pilot and the co-pilot. And if you want to look deeper, there's a corporate merger providing an intriguing backdrop uh, for this whole uh, near-catastrophic affair, uh, if you like that sort of thing in your mysteries. And then the real culprit came out in the pilot's confession. There was this really nifty new computer program that caused them to become engrossed in their laptops. Now, we expect that from 13-year-old boys with their Game Boys, but not from professionals with 31,000 hours of combined flying time. And it's only when a flight attendant called on the intercom that these experienced professionals realized they missed their destination. And we're headed for, well, maybe a really cool view of Lambeau Field. Uh, really cool, except that a few hundred folks trusted their lives uh, to go to the Mall of America instead. And due to other problems that likely need fixing too, we uh, just don't have the reaction of the pilots to the flight attendant's little question uh, at that point. We can just imagine what they said. Okay, don't imagine that. <laughs> but thank God the plane turned around and landed and everybody was safe and all is well. All is well. Well, kind of, sort of. Because the problem is a lot bigger than a couple of distracted pilots. See, it's not just people who get distracted. It's also churches that get distracted. And I think that's become a huge problem for the church in America today. I mean, what, what would things look like if Satan had his way in a city? I mean, probably the first frames in our imaginative slideshow uh, would probably depict mayhem on a massive scale. You know, widespread violence, deviant sexualities, pornography in every vending machine, churches closed down, worshipers dragged off to jail. But over 50 years ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was the pastor of Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church, gave his CBS radio audience a very different picture of what it would look like if Satan took control of a city in America. He said that he thought Satan had control. Things would look very different. He said he thinks all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. There would be uh, pristine streets and sidewalks occupied by tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. And all of the children would answer, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full on Sunday where Christ is not preached. His view, if Satan got control, he would let us think that everything is just fine, except Christ would not be preached. You see, the enemy has a subtle way of using the scenery and props to obscure the main character. And our focus can be changed. Perhaps it's on cultural transformation, not a bad thing. 
But that can become the focus instead of, as Hebrews 12 tells us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And as provocative as Donald Gray Barnhouse's illustration uh, remains, it's the same point we see throughout the whole story of redemption, throughout the Bible. The story behind all the headlines of the Bible is the war between the serpent and the offspring of the woman. It begins in Genesis 3.15, and there's a hostility that God promised would culminate in the serpent's destruction and the lifting of the curse. And this promise was a declaration of war on Satan and his kingdom, and the contest immediately unfolded in the first religious war uh, we have in the Bible between Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. We see it in the battle between Pharaoh and Yahweh that led to the exodus and the temptation in the wilderness. And even when the Israelites were finally in the land, the serpent seduces Israel to idolatry and immorality. And yet God always preserved that seed of the woman who had crushed the serpent's head. The story leads all the way to Herod's slaughter of the uh, firstborn children out of fear of the Magi's announcement of the birth of the true king of Israel. And then the Gospels unpack this storyline, and the epistles elaborate its significance. Everything is leading towards the cross. And even the disciples, even Peter, try to distract Jesus away from that mission. We see that in Matthew 16, and they're being unwitting servants of Satan. We see this problem throughout the scriptures. We're told in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. So this is the story of the Bible. And now we know that Satan lost the war on Good Friday and Easter, but shifted his strategy to keep the world from hearing the gospel that dismantles his kingdom of darkness. Paul speaks of this cosmic battle in Ephesians 6, and he directs us to the word, the gospel, Christ and his righteousness and faith and salvation as our only armor against the assaults of the enemy. And we will see when we get to Revelation 12, the history of redemption is recapitulated with uh, the dragon sweeping a third of the stars representing the angels from heaven and then laying in wait to devour the woman's child at birth only to be defeated by the ascension of that promised offspring. Nevertheless, Satan, knowing his time is short, he pursues that child's brothers and sisters. And wherever Christ is truly proclaimed, Satan is actively present. He seeks to devour the church, employing the same uh, tried and true and tested methods, uh, not only persecution and martyrdom uh, from outside the church, as we saw last week with the church in Smyrna, and as we see around the world today, but also heresy and schism from within. And Satan knows from long experience that sowing heresy and schism is far more effective. While the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, 
The assimilation of the church to the world silences that witness. And it's easy to become distracted from Christ as the only hope for sinners, where everything is measured by happiness rather than God's holiness. When that happens, the sense of our being sinners becomes secondary, if not even offensive. If we're merely good people who've lost our way, but with the proper instruction and motivation can become better people, then we don't need a redeemer. We just need a good life coach. And today, I believe the church is being routinely tempted to what can only be called Christless Christianity. Christless Christianity. That sounds a bit harsh. I mean, we're a little shallow, perhaps, sometimes distracted, even a little man-centered from time to time. But Christless? And what that means is, I think we're getting dangerously close to the place in everyday American church life where the Bible is mined for relevant quotes, but is largely irrelevant on its own terms. God is used as a personal resource rather than known, worshipped, and trusted. Jesus Christ is a coach with a good game plan for victory rather than a Savior who's already achieved it for us. Salvation is more a matter of having our best life now than being saved from God's judgment by God himself. And the Holy Spirit is an electrical outlet that we can plug into for the power that we need to be all that we can be. And the message of much of American Christianity has simply become trivial, sentimental, tolerant, irrelevant, and a place where Christ is not preached. Sadly, this is not a new situation because it's very similar to the situation in a church a long time ago in a city named Pergamum. And that brings us finally to our text this morning, which was written to a church in the city. Verses 12 and 13, a church in the city. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Can we go ahead and put up the map? All right. So we started, if you remember, in Ephesus. And last week we went to Smyrna. And now we go 60 miles north to Pergamum, way up there at the top. We have sort of a semicircle uh, here. And we're at the top of the semicircle. And uh, this is the third church to receive this letter. It's about 20 miles inland and about 60 miles north of Smyrna. Now, Pergamum is traditionally known for its worship of the serpent god Asclepius. Don't try to say that. He is the god of healing. And his symbol on Pergamum's coins was a serpent. Asclepius as a serpent would remind one of Satan as a serpent and as a dragon in Revelation. Now, Pergamum also hosted temples to the imperial cult of the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma, as well as all the usual list of uh, Greek and Roman gods. And it had a famous giant altar of Zeus that was 120 by 112 feet, and it overlooked the city 
on a citadel, and some have suggested this is the background for the reference to Satan's throne in these verses. Zeus, after all, was the king of the Greek gods. But the central image in this passage appears to be that of Roman rule. Pergamum was an independent city until 133 BC, and its last king willed it to Rome. He just gave it away. He said, I'm dying, you can have my city. People in the city had no choice. Nobody voted. There was no negotiation. Just here, have the city, the people, the buildings, the whole nine yards. And so it became the capital city of Rome in Asia. It was the provincial capital. If Ephesus was like New York, and Smyrna was San Francisco, then Pergamum is Washington, D.C. It's the capital. It's the seat of power. It's where the proconsul had his headquarters. And he had almost unlimited power, including the power of the sword, both to fight and to execute capital punishment. And that fact becomes important because how does Jesus describe himself in these verses? As the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And so all the descriptions we see in these letters have direct relevance to that city, to that church uh, which they're written to. This is the city that has the power of the sword, and Jesus says, I'm the one with the sword. The sword is this, uh, Jesus' sword is a symbolic representation of the word of God and its twofold ability to separate believers from the world and to condemn the world for its sin. And it's the sword of salvation as well as the sword of judgment. Now the throne of Caesar then is the throne of Satan. Satan is not identified uh, with Rome totally. He is independent of all of his, uh, his tools. But it's the Roman rulers through whom Satan works. And it's the means through which Satan rules and controls that area. In this case, all of Asia Minor. And... Uh, It also is the means through which Satan persecutes the church. And the key to this identification is the reference to Antipas, a Christian martyr. Given that the pro-council had the power to put people to death, this probably indicates official persecution. Antipas has been martyred. And notice Jesus gives him one of his own titles. He says, my faithful witness a title that Jesus applies to himself in Revelation 1. And in the aftermath of his martyrdom, the church must have lived in fear, for they're located in the very seat of Roman power. They can hardly escape the notice of Rome. You can turn off the map now, thanks. And yet, despite their ability and willingness to stand strong in the face of persecution, to stand strong against the empire, Jesus surprises them here with a very strong rebuke. Good verses 14 and 15, a strong rebuke. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught uh, Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, in the book of Numbers, in chapters 22 through 25, we find the story of Balaam and his famous donkey. And as the Israelites wandered through the wilderness, 
God had prevented the prophet Balaam from cursing them. And so Balaam found a much subtler avenue of attack. And he advised Moab's king to send Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men into idolatry and sexual immorality. And so he did, she did, they did, and eventually God came and struck them all dead. And therefore, Jesus' characterization of this false teaching in Pergamum with Balaam means that he sort of serves as the prototype for any teacher who advocates compromise with pagan society and pagan morality. Now, the Nicolaitans, we saw them in Ephesus, they are replicating Balaam's strategy of luring believers away into all kinds of unfaithfulness. And if you remember when we had the church in Ephesus, I said the, the word Nicolaitan comes from two Greek words, which basically means to conquer the people. What do you think Balaam means? That's a Hebrew word. It means to conquer the people. And so now, you have these people advocating for Christian participation in the pagan ceremonies of the culture. And so much of pagan life is affected by idolatry. The food one ate, the coins you used, uh, the holidays you celebrated, even the restaurants one frequented, and so on. And so there's this great temptation for Christians to find ways to accommodate themselves to the culture. And on top of that, the cult of the Roman Empire is everywhere. And it's become a badge of citizenship to partake in that kind of worship. Now, I'm sure that a great many people thought it was just plain silly. Worshiping a man as a god, a man whose human limitations were perfectly well known. But they did it anyways. And the Gentile Christians in the Pergamum church have been part of that culture their whole lives. It's simply a way of life for them. And they could easily say, you know, we never took it seriously before we became Christians, and we certainly don't take it seriously afterwards, so why make an issue about it now? But idolatry is connected throughout the Bible with immorality. One leads to the other, always in the scriptures. Idolatry always leads to immorality. And that's clear from Romans 1. So the reference here to sexual immorality may refer to this basic lack of morals that were just part and parcel of uh, pagan life and worship. And this whole city and this whole culture are shaped by its temples and its idolatry and its sensual worship with temple prostitutes and all the rest. And we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that it was really a new thought to many Gentile Christians that their sexual life had to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ and that they were required to be chaste as single and faithful as married. Christianity introduced those as somewhat novel concepts that really weren't being followed outside of Judaism. They actually weren't being followed all that well inside of Judaism. In any case, their argument was probably something like this. Look, these idols aren't real anyway. What difference does it make if we eat food offered to them or participate in the temple rituals? Most of the pagans do these things, you know, just out of civic duty, not out of any real religious belief. And we're good citizens, and this way we can remain friends with them. You know, perhaps we can be a witness to them. 
But lurking beneath are the attractions of sensuality and worldliness, as well as the safety that comes through accommodation to this prevailing culture. Today, we live in an unprecedented sensual culture, much like the culture of Balaam and of Pergamum. And Christians are deciding in great numbers that the sexual ethics of the Bible are just too hard. And if some are openly uh, advocating a promiscuous life, they're simply practicing it with a less troubled conscience. Promiscuity has become more and more common in a time and place such as ours. And to stand against it requires great determination. Or we could look and consider the uh, uh, relativism and the pluralism of our society today, of our culture. The insistence on every side for tolerance on all matters of uh, uh, various outlooks, various viewpoints. And what's the problem with that? Isn't tolerance a good thing? The problem is truth. That unyielding, fixed, absolute standard that refuses to be trimmed or shaved in any way. And the one who has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth has spoken. And he has said that faithfulness to him and a life of Christian integrity cannot be reconciled to pagan practices, cannot be harmonized with pagan worship, cannot be friendly with a life that's offensive to God. And the problem is that God forbids both idolatry and immorality. And the temptation that Christians uh, face is that we somehow begin to imagine that people can be saved who aren't Christians at all. But the problem is that there's one way to God in heaven, and that is the way of faith in Jesus Christ. If you look at it, I mean, after all, Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're okay with that part. And then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, that sounds intolerant. Why is Jesus so intolerant? In our day, tolerance is exalted as a great virtue, especially on moral and religious grounds. But here Jesus presents himself as passionately intolerant. Why? Because Jesus loves the truth. Because Jesus speaks the truth. Because Jesus is the truth. And because, as he claims throughout the Bible, falsehood and deception of any kind enslaves people. And Jesus is passionately intolerant because he's passionately intolerant of people being enslaved. And he's especially intolerant of false ideas being taught in his name. And so it was in Pergamum. And he gives them a pretty severe warning. Look at verse 16. And the warning. He says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember what he said earlier? He said, I know where you dwell. I wonder if he said that like, I know where you dwell. And what God has revealed to be true is there are standards by which we live. His standards 
and that failing to live by those standards will bring his judgment. And there's a correct way to understand the faith and an incorrect way. And there's such a thing as orthodoxy and such a thing as heresy. And there's such a thing as obedience and such a thing as disobedience. And God alone will judge between them. But he's revealed his will to us through his words that we may know what is true and what's not, what's right and what's wrong, what thinking and living belong to heaven and what thinking and living belong to hell. And again, as in the first letter, there's a warning that if this sin is not repented of, the Lord will judge the church. Remember, he's not writing this to everybody out there. He's writing this to the church. He's writing this to the Christians. He's writing this to his bride. And the sin of the church was its tolerance of this lack of Christian faithfulness, both in in belief and in action, among some, if not many, of our members. And the Lord would come to the entire church, but his wrath would be particularly directed at the heretics. Now remember, Pergamon's the city with the power of the sword. And now Jesus is letting them know, in comparison, that the sword he bears is far more powerful. Reminds me of Jesus saying in Matthew 10, where he said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And you notice that this phrase, the sword of my mouth, uh, ties the end of the letter with the description of Christ at the beginning of the letter. The believers are being reminded where the real judgment and real power is to be found. The empire can threaten those who don't conform with exile and hunger, but Christ is offering them a sustenance that the world cannot comprehend. And the empire can exclude those who don't profess allegiance um, to its power, but Christ offers the faithful a white stone and a new name, a token of acceptance and inclusion into the heavenly banquet. So the church is being given the opportunity to repent of this unbiblical tolerance of idolatry and sexual immorality, and if they do truly repent, then Jesus makes them a promise. Verse 17, he makes them a promise. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And again, the letter concludes, as do the others, with a promise of eternal life to those who remain faithful. Manna, uh, he mentions hidden manna. Manna is that supernatural food supplied to the Israelites uh, during their sojourn from Egypt to Canaan. And in this case, the promise takes the form of they're eating the food of the Messianic feast at the end of the age. And if they're faithful and rejected the tainted food, the food sacrificed to idols of pagan Pergamum, then the Lord will give them heavenly food in due time. But what about this odd reference to a white stone? This is about the only place it's mentioned in the Bible. And in my reading, I found over a dozen possible interpretations. The one that made the most sense to me, uh, because it actually fit in the context of Pergamum being a place of judgment. And in the ancient court of law, when defendants were condemned, when they received a guilty verdict, they received a black stone with their name written on it. But if they were acquitted, they received a white stone with their name written on it. And even when the jurors voted, they would vote with, a, with small black stones or small white stones, guilty or innocence. 
And so similarly, we see here that those who trust Christ for salvation receive an acquittal from the judgment of God. And the white stone is a picture of that unearned acquittal. Now, the new name, uh, which seems to refer to the name of a faithful believer, seems that idea is drawn directly from Isaiah. We see in Isaiah 62, it says, The nation shall see, shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. It's an image for a new age, a new situation, a new life, all of which await those who are faithful to the Lord. And all through Revelation, both white and new are adjectives of heavenly things. Now, as I read this letter, there's something that's sort of eerily contemporary about this letter written somewhere around 2,000 years ago, 1,900 years ago. But it's describing a city that's proud of its sophistication, but it's sensual and worldly in its outlook. And a Christian church being tempted to accommodate its ethics to those of the surrounding culture and a growing rift between the church and the society. I mean, what is there about this church with which we can't immediately identify? So how do the Balaams of the world seduce us with false teaching? I think one of the most common ways is simply through distraction, which brings us back to where we started because we're still distracted. We're going to go back to the distracted pilots and the airplane. And yes, we thank God that the plane turned around and landed and all is well, sort of. And I think Neil Postman was a great writer. His work is very helpful to us at this point. He wrote two famous books. One was called Technopoly, and the other one was called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And the late famous author, professor from NYU, prophetically warned that we are, quote, distracted by many things. And the issue goes uh, much deeper than even the distractions of a new computer program. The truth is, is that even when we punish teenagers and airline pilots for spending too much time on their computers and not paying attention, we still have this problem of human beings being distracted. Theologically, this is a result of the fall. The epic but very real rebellion of mankind is taught in Genesis and in Paul's epistle to the Romans and throughout the scriptures. In fact, it's the second great point of a Christian worldview, creation, fall, redemption, in which all of mankind and creation itself is subjected to a deep, uh, humanly incurable condition that mars all of the original product, all of creation. And the problem is that we're sinners. And sinners, among other things, get distracted. See, even when the matter at hand, the lives of hundreds of people, demands our utmost attention, training, experience, and dedication, we can just look away. You know, we can't really blame just the two pilots. I mean, we fiddle with our iPhones as our cars move at high speeds amidst other people and their cars moving at high speeds who are also fiddling with their iPhones. Of course, one mistake, one look away, one distraction and you end up on the front page of the paper. Or you end up with a broken home, or a lost career, 
or eternal destiny unsettled, or a rejection of the God who made you, whose creation speaks of his presence, whose law is written on your heart, but you got distracted and missed the gospel. You overshot your destination. You fly too high, too long, and disregard every voice that comes at you. Other things just have your attention. And the truth is, whether we're flying planes or running a business or leading a congregation or arguing cases in court or raising a family or being a friend or a son or a daughter, we all get distracted. And we get distracted by the most inane things, things like computer programs or other women, maybe even soulmates in Argentina. I know how many of you read the papers. Or pornography, or new cars, or buying houses we can't afford, or really nifty new religions that promise everything. Or sweet-talking spiritual gurus that tell us to go uh, meditate out in sweat houses in the heat of Arizona until we die. You get the picture, I hope. The answer is not to say, oh, you know, now I'll focus on my job, or now I'll focus on my family. The idea is to listen to the voice. There's a voice trying to get our attention. The flight attendant that asks, oh, by the way, where are we? Comes to us in all sorts of ways. And thank God she asked the question. And thank God that the word of God comes to us in all sorts of voices through pastors and podcasts and Sunday school teachers and books given at Christmas and sometimes in the gift of a child who asks, Dad, is there a God and why are we here and where are we going? And why aren't we there yet? But it's in listening to the voice, the voice that's really the voice of God speaking through his word the Bible, attested to by the voice of his son, Jesus. Because we're all hurtling through time and space. We're all flying high with so much at stake, and we can all get distracted. But thank God there's a divine interruption that comes to us now, if only we will hear. Matthew 17, 5. God says, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. After all, he's the king, and he's coming back, and he has a sharp two-edged sword, and he is not distracted. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, thank you for this revelation. Thank you that it does unveil to us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand these things and to take them seriously, to keep them, and to let them adjust our lives to what they reveal. We ask that you would help us to learn the truth, know the truth, speak the truth, and only tolerate the truth. And we ask that you would do this in the name of the one who is the truth, your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.